If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 658. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours. Truly, support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. You've already heard about that. You also get great classes there. If you purchase one or 20 or 25 of those classes, you keep this podcast free of charge. Of course, my latest class is Reading Abraham Lincoln. You're going to want that class. It's really good, and it's going to change your mind about Honest Abe. You can also go to brianmcclanahan.com, click on the support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way. If you're watching this podcast on YouTube, you can click on that little super thanks button under the video. If you like this video or any of the other videos, you can support the podcast and the show that way. You can also click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com, get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally and send me those show requests. I like to keep the podcast fresh and your input helps me do that. All right. This is a listener-generated episode. Um, and I hadn't read this piece at Reason. I don't often read Reason.com. Every now and then I go over there and take a look at it and see what they're doing. But um, this is, of course, following up the Dobbs decision and uh, where the left libertarians are on this particular issue. Now, Reason has been very critical of the Dobbs decision. They have been very critical of the idea of sending this particular issue back to the states. In fact, they really don't like federalism. And and. I say that in all sincerity. I don't think left libertarians really care for federalism that much. And they're essentially operating from a national libertarian perspective. You see, that's the real problem. And I'm going to go through this piece because it's confusing, not not to me, but the the writer, the author of the piece, who is one of the managing editors of, of Reason, is confused about the original Constitution. They're confused about federalism. They're confused about... Uh, original intent. In fact, they take a very Joseph Story-esque position when it comes to this particular issue. And what do I mean by that? So if you've read my How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, I talk about Joseph Story in that book. And Joseph Story is often considered to be an originalist. And of course, if you don't know who Joseph Story was, Joseph Story was a Supreme Court justice who also taught law. In fact, he was the real the first real star law professor in America. He made more money teaching in law school and writing his commentaries on the Constitution than he did as a Supreme Court justice. So his side hustle was more lucrative than his full-time job. And Joseph Story and his commentaries have become kind of the, not necessarily the Bible, I think, for, for, the, for the right-wing or even left-wing originalists. What they look at first is the Federalists. And anyway, well, I read the Federalists, so I know the Constitution. Of course, you really don't. That's why you got to take originalist papers at McClanahan Academy. But if you, if people think if they read the Federalists, they know the Constitution. The other thing they do, if they go beyond that, then they'll go out and read Joseph's story and they'll read his commentaries. Now, in uh, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, I eviscerate Joseph's story. And I do it through um, 
other authors who took apart Story's arguments, and namely Virginians like John Taylor of Caroline and Abel Upshur. Um, so, and of course, St. George Tucker, too. I mean, I'm using this very Virginia perspective on the Constitution to take apart Joseph Story. Now, remember, Joseph Story, if you don't know, was appointed by James Madison to the Supreme Court. And uh, this is probably one of Madison's greatest mistakes. Story was an unknown justice at that point. Madison was trying to balance out the court. He was, he was appointing a, a supposedly Republican New Englander to the bench. And Story immediately found under the spell of John Marshall. And John Marshall essentially got a mini-me on the, on the bench. I mean, this is what happened. And of course, John Marshall is also from Virginia. It's very much a nationalist Virginia uh, tradition as well. But uh, Joseph's story is, is a problem because what he does artfully, I mean, this, this is important. What Joseph's story does is take the arguments against the Constitution and show how those prove that the Constitution was supposed to centralize power and have unlimited, unenumerated powers. You see, so story is, is taking the arguments against ratification and saying, see, this proves that the Constitution was designed to centralize power and create all these federal powers. The Bill of Rights notwithstanding, of course. But the idea, he flipped, he flipped originalism on its head, and he's called an originalist. This is the major issue, and this is exactly what the reason piece is doing, even though they think they're not doing it, but this is exactly what they're doing. They're essentially saying, okay, let's look at the anti-federalist arguments against the Constitution. And, and at McClanahan Academy, I'm going to do an anti-federalist papers class. It's, it's going to come. I just haven't, haven't gotten around to it yet. But I would say probably in the next year or so, you're going to see at least a series of classes on that or a standalone class where I take the, the greatest hits and do that. But um, the reason I don't focus much on the anti-federalists is because that's not the arguments that won the day. We can go back and look at those and say, well, they were pretty prescient. I mean, they saw what was going to happen. But that's not the Constitution that was ratified. So I think we focus too much attention on the so-called anti-federalists and not enough on the proponents of the document to get original meaning. But the fact is, you know, the, anti, the anti-federalists, of course, were very critical. And, and so we have this, this view of the, of the Constitution that's distorted. The anti-federalists are saying, hey, the Constitution is going to centralize power. The proponents of the document are saying, no, it's not. Because we have uh, a document that is limited in its powers. It, if it doesn't say it can do it, it can't do it. The states retain everything else. And so that was the argument that won the day. That's James Wilson in his State House Yard speech. This is very important to understand. It's, it's basic uh, Constitution 101. But when you take Joseph's story and you use that as the basis, or even if you take Hamilton in some of the Federalist essays, because Hamilton was... Uh, I mean, very expansionistic in the powers of the general government, even in the Federalists in a couple of instances. And again, I get into those at, uh, at the Originalist Papers class at McClanahan Academy. But when you take all of that together, right, you do get a perspective that the Constitution had unlimited powers. I mean, it had, it had these powers that were not in the document. But w- when you look at the main arguments in favor of ratification in every single state ratification convention and in the public documents that came out throughout the United States, the main argument was the central authority has these powers and these powers alone. And so if it doesn't say it can do it, it can't do it. 
That's it. If it doesn't say it can do it, it can't do it. The other thing that these left libertarians do is they are major incorporationists, right? They believe in incorporation. They believe the Bill of Rights should apply to the states. They believe the 14th Amendment is the jewel of the U.S. Constitution. You go and look at reason. They have all these articles worried about what Clarence Thomas said and substantive due process and all these things. They're very concerned about this stuff because they think the states are going to go out and ruin liberty in America. I mean, these people are, are silly uh, because if you, I mean, they're very concerned about, you know, what the states are going to do. But the states reflect the political culture of the people in those states. And if those people don't want these things, I mean, you, you get, you, you reap what you sow, right? If you start advocating for centralization, well, then uh, what's to stop the central government from doing things you don't like? And that happens all the time. So the left libertarians essentially are leftists. I mean, they are, they are cultural leftists. They're woke. They're everything that the left is. Uh, they just don't like some of the heavy-handed policies of the left, and they really don't want a leftist economy. But culturally, they're on the left. Okay, so that's the, the real issue. And of course, they would say that anyone who's not a left libertarian isn't a real libertarian. Um, and that's a whole. I'll let the libertarians battle that one out. But the the, the fact is, these people are essentially leftists, and um, they are. A real cancer in uh, in American politics because they have this centralization gene that they think everything needs to come from the center. So let me go through this piece. This was sent to me again by a listener of the show, and uh, so I want to go through it. Damon Root wrote it, and of course, again, Damon Root is uh, a I mean, very prominent member at, at Reason Magazine. In fact, he's a senior editor at Reason, um, and he's also written a book on uh, Frederick Douglass. So uh, that's where I mean these left libertarians come from. I, I cover um, people like Frederick Douglass in um, my McClanahan Academy course, uh, 25 People Who Changed America. So anyways, the title of this piece is Alito's Abortion Ruling Overturning Roe is an Assault to the Ninth Amendment. Now this is interesting because what essentially happens here is they're taking a whole different trajectory with this. So Roe v. Wade was argued essentially on a Fourth Amendment position, if you even can say there's anything out there that was argued in favor of some amendment of the Constitution upholding this. But it essentially was a Fourth Amendment position, a right to privacy, which isn't listed in the Fourth Amendment. But what, what Root is saying here is that, well, wait a second, you could say there's a right to privacy in the Ninth Amendment, so maybe they argued it incorrectly. In fact, uh, what I find fascinating is this is the exact same position someone like Ian Milheiser takes as well. I almost covered this Ian Milheiser piece as screed against the Supreme Court. But Milheiser actually argues that Roe v. Wade was incorrectly argued as well, that they didn't do it right because they, they basically came up with the wrong argument for it in favor of, to make it constitutional. And that's essentially what Damon Root is doing here in the Left Libertarians. Wait a second, it's not really a Fourth Amendment issue, it's a Ninth Amendment issue. And when Samuel Alito says there's no, uh, there's no right to this in the Constitution, he's incorrect because it really is in the Ninth Amendment. So let me read this piece. It's a short piece, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring this back to this idea that they have inverted originalism and flipped it on his head. So he says, at the heart of Justice Samuel Alito's opinion in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, which overturns Roe v. Wade and eliminates the constitutional right to abortion, is Alito's objection that the Constitution makes no mention of abortion. For Alito and many legal conservatives who think like him, unenumerated constitutional rights are inherently suspect. When a court recognizes an unenumerated right, 
These conservatives say the court is almost certainly guilty of judicial activism. So he's saying, look, um, this is Alito's position, and this is incorrect. Unenumerated rights um, are not judicial activism. He's going to say it in the next paragraph. But this conservative mindset is at odds with constitutional text and history, both of which make clear that unenumerated rights are entitled to the same respect as the small handful of rights that the Constitution specifically lists. Now, this is again operating from a nationalist position. And if you uh, say that the Bill of Rights applies to the state, see, he's just taking for granted incorporation in this. He's just taking it for granted. There's incorporation. We know the 14th Amendment wasn't designed to do that, but that's what he's essentially, you have to get that out of the way. The left libertarians at reason operate from an incorporationist position. The Bill of Rights apply to the states. And so we're just going to get that out of the way because the Supreme Court has decided that. Now, this is where Clarence Thomas, again, eviscerated part of that, though Clarence Thomas is inconsistent because he applies it with the Second Amendment, right? So he's not happy about substantive due process, but he's okay with applications of the First Amendment and Second Amendment and these kind of things, as long as we're not using substantive due process, okay? We can, we can apply the Bill of Rights to the states. Remember that when the Constitution was first ratified, it did not yet contain its famous first ten amendments, otherwise known as the Bill of Rights. Those amendments arrived a few years later. They were added in response to the fierce criticism leveled against the Constitution by the Anti-Federalists, who opposed ratification on several grounds, one of which, that the document lacked a Bill of Rights, and therefore, in their view, left a number of key rights unprotected, because unmentioned. Now see, what has he done here? He's inverted original intent. Now, the argument the argument against a bill of rights, and he's going to get into this, but see he doesn't he doesn't go far enough with this. The argument against the bill of rights was that look, the power if there's no power there, then we can't do it. There's no reason to have a bill of rights. Now, what he gets to is he finally says, well, James Madison said, well, this is a good argument. I guess we really did have all these powers in the central authority, so let's, uh, let's, let's go with this. You see, the Bill of Rights was a major mistake. I'm going to say this. I do believe this. The Bill of Rights was a major mistake, and what it always leaves out, and what the people at Reason leave out, what all the leftists leave out because they're just leftists, is the preamble to the Bill of Rights, which said there's going to be misconstruction. Right? There's to prevent misconstruction, meaning that the central authority does not have the power to do this. It does not have the power to infringe on these things. The central authority does not have the power to do that. It has nothing to do with the states. But then again, again, the reason people are operating from incorporationist position. Well, but then the 14th Amendment, you see? And that just changed everything. But of course, we know it really didn't because the 14th Amendment didn't do that. But that's just how the Supreme Court has interpreted it. So they're, they're bashing the Supreme Court here. But on the other hand, they like the Supreme Court when it does incorporation. So the Federalists who labored on behalf of the Constitution's ratification rejected this argument. Why? Because, explained James Wilson, one of the leading figures at the Philadelphia Constitutional Convention, if we attempt an enumeration, everything that is not enumerated is presumed to be given. Now, on the flip side of that, 
he makes the state house yard speech, which, which, he doesn't cite here. But then, then he says, uh, and that, and the consequence of that, Wilson told the Pennsylvania Ratification Convention, is that an imperfect enumeration would throw all implied power into the scale of government, and the rights of the people would be rendered incomplete. So it was better to leave everything unsaid because that would ins- that would ensure that the central authority only had these powers. That was the argument. That's the State House Yard speech. He says, look, and I'm going to paraphrase the State House Yard speech, but he says, look, all right, so we've got a central authority. Everything that is, the only thing it can do is anything that's granted in the document. Whereas in the states, anything that's not prohibited is reserved, right? So the people of the states and the states themselves have all powers that aren't denied by the Constitution. And there's very few, very few. The central authority only has the powers enumerated. That's it. Nothing else. So the opponents of the Constitution were running around saying, well, wait a second here, it's going to do all these bad things, it's going to do this stuff. And Wilson's response was, no, it won't, it can't. This is Tench Cox. This is why it's it's kind of dangerous to listen to the anti-federalists. Because they give all of these nationalists, even like people at Reason, all their fuel. The Constitution didn't do these things. James Iredell, a future justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, made the same argument at the North Carolina Ratification Convention. Quote, It would not only be useless, but dangerous to enumerate a number of rights which are not intended to be given up. That is because it would be implying in the strongest manner that every right not included in the exception might be impaired by the government without usurpation. Furthermore, Iredell added, It would be impossible to enumerate everyone. Let Anyone make what collection of enumeration or enumeration of rights he pleases, I will immediately mention 20 or 30 more rights not contained in it. So, leave it out because that would imply, it would imply that there's, or it would say there's implied powers. There are no implied powers in the U.S. Constitution. None. Zero. No implied powers. The necessary and proper clauses and do that. The Supremacy Clause doesn't do that. The Commerce Clause doesn't do that. The General Welfare Clause doesn't do that. There are no implied powers in the U.S. Constitution. Not according to the Constitution as ratified. Again, if you take my Originalist Papers class, you're going to know that. So then he says, James Madison, one of the principal architects of the new Constitution, closely followed this debate. On June 8, 1789, he gave a speech to Congress proposing the group of amendments that would ultimately become the Bill of Rights. While doing so, he directly addressed the anti-federalist-federalist debate. Quote, It has been observed also against the Bill of Rights that by enumerating particular exceptions of the grant of power, it would disparage those rights which were not placed in the enumeration. And it might follow by implication that those rights which are not singled out were intended to be assigned to the hands of the general government and were consequently insecure. Look at what he said there. Into the hands of the general government and were consequently insecure. He didn't say anything about the states. He didn't say anything about the states. Now, what you could say here is, in fact, what the reason peace is ultimately arguing is that there can't be any uh, uh, abortion law from the central authority. There can't be. Now, you could say there's a right to privacy, but is this privacy? What about uh, an unborn person or, you know, wherever the case may be? So he's actually arguing against himself here in some ways, too. But 
again, Madison is saying this is a general government position. So what they're knocking down, what, what Roe v. Wade knocked down was not a general government law. It's a state law. So we, this is important. They're operating from a position of incorporation. Roe v. Wade knocked down a state law, not a federal law, but a state law. Now, if this was a federal law that was knocked down, then you can you could have this discussion about the Ninth Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, whatever, the Sixth Amendment, I mean, whatever amendment you want to take, the Fifth Amendment, whatever amendment you want to take in this particular way. You could have that argument. This really isn't a it's a it's a, a matter of federalism. And that is what's at stake here. And it's also what's at stake with substantive due process. It's what's at stake with the Second Amendment, the First Amendment, all these things that we've just seen the Supreme Court argue against. Madison acknowledged that this is one of the most plausible arguments I've ever heard used against the admission of a Bill of Rights into the system, but I conceive that it may be guarded against. I have attempted it. And that was, as Root says, the Ninth Amendment. So if we put a Bill of Rights in here, then people are going to assume that the general government has all these other powers, and so um, the general government can do all these things. It can do whatever it wants unless it's listed right here. That's flipping ratification on its head. And that's what Root is wanting us to do. Madison's attempt became enshrined in the Constitution as the Ninth Amendment. Here's what it says. Quote, The enumeration of the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. In short, unenumerated rights get the same respect as enumerated ones. Today, most legal conservatives purport to be constitutional originalists. What that means for the legal debate over abortion is that any purported originalist must face the question of whether abortion rights may be considered to be among the unenumerated rights retained by the people that Madison's Ninth Amendment was specifically written and ratified to protect. Uh, at the federal level, yes. I mean, we can have this discussion about federal policy, but this is not federal policy. This is state policy. This is federalism. This is a state issue. It's a distortion of the U.S. Constitution to say this is anything but. That's the real issue at hand here. And again, what Root has done is what Joseph's story did and flip everything on its head. Alito's opinion in Dobbsy-Jackson Women's Health Organization entirely fails to grapple with this necessary question. No, it doesn't, because he said this is a state issue. That's it. It's a state issue. Now, I could say this is selective incorporation. Right? You could, you could make that argument. If you're going to make this argument from an incorporationist position, which is essentially what Root is doing here, if we have this Ninth Amendment and we have incorporation, then I can make the argument that the Ninth Amendment protects this right in the states because we have incorporation. But you've just distorted the entire original understanding. Here is my answer to the question. Founding era history strongly supports the view that abortion rights, at least during the early stages of pregnancy, do fall within the orbit of Madison's Ninth Amendment. When the United States was founded, and for many subsequent decades, Americans relied on the English common law, explained an amicus brief filed in Dobbs by the American Historical Association and the Organization of American Historians. The common law did not regulate abortion in early pregnancy. Indeed, the common law did not even recognize abortion as occurring at that stage. That is because the common law did not legally acknowledge a fetus, a fetus as existing separately from a pregnant woman until the woman felt fetal movement, called quickening, which could occur as late as the 25th week of pregnancy. So the common law, again, is a problem because what essentially we've done now, if you take the common law, that's the enemy of originalism. It's the enemy of a written constitution. Every single day of the week. Because the common law means that court decisions matter more than the written document. 
You see, this is important to understand as well. The British Constitution is not written. It's based on the common law, court decisions on down the line through all these years and laws that are written and decided in the courts. That's it. The American constitutional tradition was supposed to be different. We have a written document, and if it says you can do it, you can do it. If it says you can't do it, you can't. If it doesn't say you can do it, you can't do it. I'm sorry. And so the states retained all other powers. You want to know it's not in there? The exact issue we're talking about. Nothing in the Constitution about it. It doesn't say the general government can pass any legislation this way or on things like marriage or schools or anything else. Right? This is why all this stuff is unconstitutional. Uh, this, these are, this is why Clarence Thomas was bringing these things up. Well, we have all these things that have been decided by courts, but you know what? That's a distorted understanding of what these things actually mean. Now, the left libertarians would disagree. No, 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 no. This is Ninth Amendment stuff. All this is Ninth Amendment, and it applies to the states. And this is where Clarence Thomas is going to get caught because he's an incorporationist when it suits him, and he's not when it doesn't. You just can't be an incorporationist. William Blackstone's widely read commentaries on the laws of England, first published in 1765, made this exact point. Life begins in contemplation of law as soon as an infant is able to stir in the mother's womb. Under the common law, Blackstone explained legal penalties for abortion only occurred if a woman is quick with child and by a potion or otherwise killeth in her womb. Blackstone's work was a major influence on America's founding generation. The founders read Blackstone and they well understood what was legal during the early stages of pregnancy under the common law. What is more, because every state at the time of the founding followed the common laws ascribed by Blackstone, no state originally possessed the lawful power to prohibit abortion before the quickening. But see, this is, this no, no, that's not true, right? Every state possessed that power. Every state possessed that power. They could do whatever they want. The states could do any of this. We might call this original understanding of the regulatory powers of the states. No. The states, this is James Wilson. Why don't you, and this is where I would say to Root, why don't you go out and look at uh, James Wilson in his state house yard speech? Because they could do whatever they wanted if it wasn't denied by the center or by their own Bill of Rights. That was also the argument that Root doesn't bring up. Every state had its own Bill of Rights. So if you want to take this position from the Bill of Rights of each individual state, you could do that. You could do that, right? You could go out and do that. But that's not what he's doing here. Again, he's flipping the entire understanding of originalism on its head and saying the states are beholden to this U.S. Constitution. That's not the way it works. And the states weren't beholden to that unless they were denied that power in Article 1, Section 10, which I'm going to tell you it's not there, what he's arguing. The same original understanding extends to the Ninth Amendment. Because the states followed the common law at the founding, the American people originally understood that lawmakers lacked the lawful power to prohibit women from ending an unwanted pregnancy during its early stages. The freedom to end an unwanted pregnancy before quickening thus falls within the original meaning and understanding of a right retained by the people. This is just stupid. Because the common law is malleable. And yes, they read Blackstone, but they could do stuff with they, they could do anything they wanted. Just because they read Blackstone didn't mean they agreed with Blackstone, and the states could do whatever they wanted. This is it, go out again and read an American citizen, Tench Cox. It's in the originalist papers. Tench Cox makes very clear what the states they can do all of this stuff. All of these things. The central government can do these things. The states can do all kinds of stuff the central government can't do. And you know what? One of those things would fall under this? Exactly what Rude is talking about here. So this piece is. Um, a nice example of where certain people go with this stuff. But again, they're taking this, they're flipping everything on its head. 
They're working against originalism by purporting to be originalists, but they're really not. What they're doing is they're nationalists. And these nationalists, whether they're under the stripe of libertarians or conservatives or leftists, progressives, whatever they are, that's the real disease here. Because the people of the states get to decide these things that reflect the political culture of those people. All right. There's my take on this left libertarian stance on this stuff. It's complete garbage. I'll see you tomorrow on The Brian McLean Show. See you then. <laughs>